Welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable, New Jersey's Energy Future, Modernizing Energy Infrastructure. The transmission of energy from source to ratepayer is a critical yet often overlooked dimension of the utility equation. From aging energy infrastructure vulnerabilities to challenges presented by extreme weather events, utilities are adapting with investment in grid resilience and storm hardening. So what are the best choices in new transmission technologies, and how can infrastructure improvements cost-effectively meet New Jersey's growing energy needs? We'll hear from a panel of experts that includes the following. Steve Cornelli, Principal for Strategies for Clean Energy Innovation. David Daly, President and Chief Operating Officer of Public Service Electric and Gas Company. Tom Gilbert, Campaign Director, Energy, Climate and Natural Resources for the New Jersey Conservation Foundation. Andrew Hendry, President and CEO of the New Jersey Utilities Association. And Buddy Tommen, the President and Business Manager of IBEW Local Number 94 for New Jersey. Moderating the panel is Tom Johnson, the Energy Editor for NJ Spotlight. And before we hear an opening address from Dawn Zimmer, the former mayor of Hoboken, New Jersey, here's John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, to open the program. Welcome, everyone. My name is John Mooney. I'm a founding editor of NJ Spotlight. And uh, thank you all for taking time out of your day uh, to join us for this let's say timely conversation needless to say um you know three nor'easters in in 10 days uh, i don't know does anyone still have power out is any everybody okay so we have somewhat of a satisfied group um if if you did you you were going to get a prize of the first question but if given you don't um there you go all right there you go um certainly uh we try to be timely always sometimes we're timelier than we know um, and then I saw the news today of, of I, I guess, the questions of potential Russian hacking into our, our power grid and power plants. Um, I swear there was no collusion between us and, and the Russians on this one, um, but it, it certainly uh, brings some attention to some critical issues facing uh, the state and its and energy infrastructure. So I'm really pleased we can have this conversation. I say this every time, um, as, as most of you or all of you should know, uh, NJ Spotlight's an online news service. We're now about to celebrate our eighth birthday, but uh, a really important piece of what we do is pulling these, is having these events. I think um, for all the chatter online and, and back and forth, I think getting people in the same room talking about these issues, uh, I think is really valuable. And, and we, we get away uh, from that more and more with, with the growth of online news. And, and I hope Spotlight can be a place that can continue to bring folks together. Um, I do want to do one shout out of one special guest. Governor Florio is joining us today um, and he's been to a few of our events. So uh, we really appreciate you, you joining us today. That said, none of this happens without um, support from a variety of sources and, and a, a pitch for NJ Spotlight. Uh, on, the, on the programs you have uh, on the backside, uh, we make a pitch for folks to become members. Um, you know, we like to build that community. Uh, it, it does require a, a small donation, and which goes really a long way for us. Um, we are a nonprofit, and, and 
are, are paid like like a nonprofit, but we you know we're professional journalists, and these are professional services, and and it really makes a big difference to have the support of our readers uh, and our members, and and we, we'd hope you consider that. Uh, there's a bunch of places on the site uh, that that give you the opportunity to to give a donation and become a member and and receive the benefits from that. Um, a second uh, really primary source resource for us is the sponsorships of events like this. Uh, it wouldn't happen without sponsorships from uh, some of our corporate and other supporters. And um, I wanted to give you a little more information about them. I'm going to introduce our business development director, Steve Shallot, who will share some insights on that. And then uh, we'll get the program started. Thanks, John. I'm Steve Shallot. I'm the director of business development with Spotlight. Is, uh, as John said, so I, I kind of double as a erstwhile producer of this event, which includes talking to and uh, working with the sponsors, um, of whom I'd like to give uh, acknowledgement and thanks this morning. Um, firstly is the New Jersey Utilities Association. Uh, the NJUA is the Statewide Trade Association for Investor-Owned Utilities. These utilities provide water, wastewater, electric, natural gas, and telecommunication services to New Jersey residents and businesses. And the NJUA has provided a forum for the exchange of ideas and a unified voice in the public policy arena for its members since 1915. Uh, secondly, I'd like to thank the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, uh, Local 94, located in Heightstown, New Jersey. The IBEW Local 94 is the largest local union within PSE&G. And the IBEW's members provide critical technical work in energy infrastructure areas, including electrical, nuclear, natural gas, and line clearance. And uh, lastly, I'd like to thank PSE&G, which is the largest provider of gas and electric service in New Jersey, serving 2.2 million electric and 1.8 million gas customers in more than 300 urban, suburban, and rural communities, including the state's largest cities. Among PSE&G's investments is enhancements in electric and gas transmission and distribution systems for reliability and resilience during severe weather. And the utility also develops solar systems on landfills and brownfields and offers energy efficiency programs for hospitals, small businesses, government facilities, and nonprofits. So thanks again to our sponsors, without whom this would be difficult to do. Appreciate everyone being here. And back to John. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Okay, um, let's get the program started. Um, our, our opening uh, speaker is Dawn Zimmer, elected mayor of Hoboken, uh, its first female mayor in 2009, and served until last year, 2017. Uh, she became best known in shepherding the city through the devastation of Hurricane Sandy, uh, became really a leading voice in addressing not just Hoboken, but New Jersey and other states, uh, and, and how they can withstand the impacts of climate change, which has really become a a big cause for her um, since then. Much of her work has been around land use and specifically, specific to this conference, she spearheaded a redevelopment process to negotiate a land swap agreement that will provide for the construction of a 170 million energy resiliency project to ensure Hoboken has reliable energy into the future. Uh, she'll be talking about that project today and other lessons for our state and communities. And please join me in welcoming Dawn Zimmer. Actually, I think oh, it's got me oh, a young mic up. Okay. So thank you very much. It's really uh, it's a pleasure to be here and be a part of this very important conversation. So thank you so much to 
New Jersey Spotlight for inviting me and bringing us all together. And um, I'm, as he as said, I'm going to be focusing, taking us back to 2012. And Sandy, I know the most recent storms have been a major challenge um, for our state, but I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, Sandy. So, you know, I speak to you today as the former uh, mayor of, of Hoboken, and I, I saw my city through the devastation of Superstorm Sandy, and I want to share that experience, really uh, take us back to that as an example of energy resiliency and, and the importance of it and the critical path that Hoboken is working towards to ensure the safety of our residents and our community going forward. And as our state and our country, I think we all know, face more and more severe storms, Energy resiliency is essential to ensuring the safety of communities and our state's economic vitality. So Superstorm Sandy struck New Jersey and our region very hard, as we all know. And Hoboken, as a coastal community on the Hudson River, was one of the communities devastated by the storm. As a small city of 53,000 people in a little over a square mile, our city became an island. The Hudson River came in from the north and the south and a wave of the river water came in and created a toxic mix of river water and sewage because we have a combined sewer system that flooded 80% of our city uh, for nearly a week. Parts of our city were 10 feet underwater. Garden level street apartments and businesses and critical infrastructure severely flooded. And this included all three of our electrical substations that were underwater as a result of the storm. The floodwaters were devastating, but the loss of power what was, was what created the most challenging public safety issue. I remember when we were finally able to get the National Guard to come in and help our residents. They arrived at night, and my OEM team and I drove with them through the floodwaters so they could do their initial assessment of the situation. As we slowly rode through the deep and dark waters with some residents calling out from their apartments, I thought about the residents with possible medical emergencies. Was there a senior having a medical emergency? Or a child? Or a young person? With the power out for days and everyone's cell phones without power, there was no way to communicate and no way to know where the residents who may have needed the most help were located. As an elected official whose primary responsibility was the safety of my residents, it was devastating not to be able to communicate with residents who may have desperately needed help. It is one of several memories that drove my resolve to make Hoboken more energy resilient. In the midst of the storm, I also remember a community emergency response team member coming to me in tears, exclaiming, my grandmother is running out of oxygen. She's on an oxygen generator. There's no power in the building. She refuses to evacuate, and she will run out of oxygen soon. Can you come and help me convince her to evacuate? I went immediately, and together we successfully persuaded his grandmother to go to a safe, comfortable shelter with a backup power system for her oxygen. I was able to be there for that senior. But did we know where all of the other seniors on oxygen were located? And could we get to them in time? I was also reminded of how critical energy resiliency is when I was out helping our teams of volunteers deliver food to residents. I found one senior on the floor, alone and devastated. Look at how my building left me in the dark. There's only the red exit sign. There's no light even in the hallways so I can safely get down the stairs, she exclaimed. 
In that moment, I could only comfort her with food and hold her and hug her as she cried in my arms. My concept for the Hoboken Microgrid project was fueled by these experiences during Sandy. I'm sure as some of you listen to these stories, you might be thinking, well, why didn't you just evacuate everyone? I've seen Hoboken through several severe storms that brought power loss, including Hurricane Irene and Superstorm Sandy. With each storm, I called for an evacuation of ground level apartments and had CERT team members, volunteers, knock on doors to alert people of the need to evacuate. The tough reality is that there is physically no way to get everyone to evacuate. And it is the most vulnerable members of our community that do not have the resources to evacuate and are left behind. Out of my experience with Irene and Sandy, I have worked to implement a shelter-in-place strategy through energy resiliency projects to ensure that everyone, regardless of their economic background, can be safe through the storms. Another story I want to share about the importance of energy resiliency relates to our public safety team. We had backup generators for our police station and one of our operational fire stations. Three of our four fire stations flooded during Sandy. We came close to running out of fuel for our police vehicles and our fire trucks. It was very difficult to get more fuel, fuel supplies. And one of our solutions was helping to set up a backup generator for the gas station so the electrically powered pump could pump fuel from the ground up to the station and be used for fueling our emergency vehicles. I share these stories with the hope of conveying the importance of energy resiliency. Since 2012, we have worked with PSE&G to make our substations more resilient by elevating them above the floodwaters and upgrading the 50-year-old technology. I testified in support of the PSE&G Energy Strong program and was stunned when I was told by the state that the state wanted to cut Hoboken substation project from the Energy Strong funding. Apparently, the state was concerned the project, which would protect seniors, could result in rates being too expensive for seniors. While I understand the cost concerns, failing to take action to help communities with at-risk energy systems is short-sighted and ultimately hurts our most vulnerable residents far more than a modest increase in rates. I want to thank PSE&G and the state for eventually finding a way to fund the necessary upgrades in Hoboken. I'm very proud that a complicated land swap agreement with PSE&G will result in a combined, upgraded, and elevated substation. The project was one of my major policy goals for Hoboken, and I am grateful that working together, we were able to get the project approved locally and by the state. Elevating and upgrading the substations to more reliable technology is a very important part of Hoboken's future energy resiliency. We are also working towards a microgrid project that could also meet several important goals, further ensure the safety of the community, possibly help to reduce PSE&G's future capital costs, and create a platform for renewable energy. During Sandy, we found that there were critical assets that needed to be operational to see our community through the storm. This included the police station, the fire department, Office of Emergency Operations, the flood pump that pumped out 80 million gallons of water a day, among other critical facilities. 
We needed our shelter for our residents who evacuated to have power. We also needed a pharmacy so we could get medicine to our seniors at risk of medical emergencies. As a result, immediately after the storm, we provided a backup generator to our local pharmacy so volunteers could deliver medicine to seniors in need. A grocery store was critical too, and we provided a backup generator for our local grocery store. Some of our backup generator systems had mechanical failures or were at risk of flooding, but they were all essential. Our microgrid project that we started with the US Department of Energy and Sandia National Labs shortly after Sandy will provide a way for our critical operations to be connected and more reliably operational through future storms. For example, the microgrid will ensure that if the backup generator for the flood pump is flooded, the microgrid system that connects the police station, backup generator, and other critical facilities could share power with the pump and keep it operational. In fact, the backup generator for our city's critical flood pump came close to flooding, and, and which would have left our substations flooded for a very long time. We've been conducting feasibility studies and getting grants, and also the city just invested in the conduit and fiber optic um, for the microgrid down our main street as part of a redesign project. Since we are already doing a major design of our street and upgrading the water mains, we made the investment in installing the microgrid fiber, since digging up the street is what makes the microgrid projects very expensive. Once, once completed, this could be New Jersey's first municipal microgrid. I hope that a potential partnership with PSE&G or possibly a private um, P3 within the energy sector could create a win-win project for everyone and a model for energy resiliency in at-risk communities. As part of the microgrid project, feasibility studies are also being conducted in partnership with the Housing Authority to determine if a cogeneration plant could be built to provide more reliable energy to Housing Authority residents and reduce the peak loads peak load demands on PSE&G on hot summer days and weeks during severely cold temperatures. There are potential land use that could be used for the plant, and the project would benefit the safety of housing authority residents who often, again, do not have the resources to evacuate and possibly be a resource for PSE&G to meet their ever-increasing peak load demands without having to build new plants. My understanding from energy experts is that the failures often arise from the transmission lines. So distributed energy systems, such as a cogeneration plant, could also provide a more reliable energy system. I'm looking forward to hearing from the experts on our panel. But before I turn it over to them, I want to mention that providing energy resiliency needs to be a partnership. Communities, particularly those in flood zones, can also help to ensure their residents' safety by encouraging residents in flood areas to raise up their utilities so that their access to power is more resilient. In Hoboken, we passed a flood prevention ordinance that requires future development to be built with the mechanicals raised up above the flood zone. Finally, we must all understand that energy resiliency requires both a vision and a willingness to invest in that vision. If we want our communities to be safer, and our businesses and critical assets to have power through the major storms and to be able to recover quickly, we need to persuade the public that this is an investment worth making. 
Energy resiliency investments will save us money in the long term. Ultimately, energy resiliency is not only the safer solution, but the most cost-effective solution. So thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to uh, the panel, and I'm going to turn it over to the moderator. Thank you. All right, I invite the panelists to join us. And then I'll turn it over to the moderator. A couple of, uh, of um, procedural things um, and, and how this will work. First of all, for those uh, interested, there is free Wi-Fi here. Um, and it's, uh, if you care, we, we have the code with us, but if, um, if you need the information now, it's the ATT network, go into the promo code and the uh, password is 2018Hilton130, all one word. Um, also on your desks or on your tables are uh, surveys that we ask you to fill out before you leave. Um, it's really important to us to get your feedback about how this event went, uh, the facilities, the food, the coffee. Um, it's just really important for us to continue to try to improve on these things and, and we can't do so without hearing from you. There are also index cards on the, on the tables and, and we like to have these events as interactive as, as we can. And the way we do it is if you have a question, um, write it out on an index card, wave it to one of us who will be wandering around the outside of the room, and we'll get it up to the moderator who will try to integrate it into the conversation. Uh, no guarantees we get to everyone uh, by any means, but um, we really appreciate having that kind of um, back and forth. Uh, also, this is all on the record, and this was being recorded, um, and we will be releasing uh, in the next week or two the podcasts of these recordings. I've, I talked to one attendee today who said he listened to the last podcast on the way down, um, so, so you know, which is which is wonderful. It's a, a running series that we have now, um, but uh, this really ended up being a great feature for us, and, and um, want to thank Steve Lebetkin who, who runs that for us wherever he is. Uh, it's, it's really wonderful. We'll also have a story, a news story on this, uh, probably on Monday, um, you know, recounting what was discussed and, and some of the features of that. And the author of that story will be your moderator today. Uh, Tom Johnson is one, also one of the founding uh, founders of NJ Spotlight, a longtime reporter on energy and environment uh, with the Star Ledger, where I first met him, and uh, a wonderful moderator and knows as much about uh, these topics as anybody. So, welcome, Tom Johnson. You guys are be Thanks, John, and uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, we've got a great panel here today. Uh, I also want to recognize. Uh, Former BPU President Jean Fox is here. Uh, she knows a bit more about energy than I do. <laughs> okay, uh, first off, we'll start off with uh, Buddy Thurm uh, Thurman. Uh, he's uh, President and Business Manager of IBEW Local 94. And uh, Buddy, uh, I guess you've been pretty busy lately, huh? Yes, that would be an understatement. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Local 94 represents uh, approximately 4,400 members. Uh, 3,600 of our members uh, work for PSEG. They work in uh, electric and gas distribution, transmission, as well as fossil and nuclear generation. 
We also have a couple multi-employer agreements with 14 different companies to provide line clearance tree trimming throughout the entire state of New Jersey. We, um, we enjoy a good working relationship with the management of public service, and I think that's reflective in the jobs that we do in terms of providing reliability and service to the customers. I don't think you have to look too far to give a good example of that, given the recent storms that just took place back to back to back. Um, we had hundreds of thousands of customers without service. In addition to our members getting the service to the customers back in a reasonable period of time, we at the same time also provided uh, a hand in providing service to customers outside of our jurisdiction. So I think our members did an outstanding job with this. Um, and. Uh, I think we got um, some acknowledgement all the way up to the governor's office, if any of you happen to see any of the recent press conferences that he gave. In terms of uh, infrastructure upgrades, um, our local has and still do support the infrastructure upgrades in both gas and electric, and we do so for many reasons. One is, you know, the obvious, as a, as a labor person, uh, I have a strong interest in creation of jobs. Jobs that are um, uh, highly skilled and highly paid. And the old, the old Energy Strong, the GSMP, in fact, did that. And it wasn't just within our local union that these jobs were created. There were thousands of jobs that were created. Uh, when Energy Strong went on, it was at a time when jobs were desperately needed. And thousands of people were put to work to, to help support these efforts. The work is so huge that the workforce that we, that we um, represent within the utility is not large enough to do uh, all this work. So contractors were brought in, union contractors were brought in, highly skilled, highly paid, and again, at a time where it was needed. So um, we, again, we have and we still do support the infrastructure upgrades in both gas and electric. Uh, another benefit that uh, a lot of you may not notice, but the workforce that we represent at the utility. When we do these, these upgrades, we make the, the uh, st stability to the grid. So we have less interruption in our day-to-day -day work, which allows the, uh, the work management process to run a little bit more smoothly, not having a people, uh, pull people off of jobs to, to do incidental things that are not, um, they're breaking, but not things that don't necessarily cause an outage, but require people to interrupt other work to perform. Um, another benefit is obviously we have the environmental benefit. On the gas side, um, 
if you don't know already, our area, our jurisdiction has the highest gas leakage in the United States. We have the largest amount of cast iron steel mains that are being replaced with uh, uh, more durable uh, uh, plastic pipe, which enables the company to run the gas at a higher pressure, which also benefits the customers because it makes their appliance run more efficiently. So there's a, a benefit to the company, there's a benefit to all workers, there's a benefit to the environment, there's a benefit to the customers. Thank you, buddy. Uh, next up is uh, David Daly. He's uh, President and CEO of Public Service Electric and Gas. Dave, welcome. Thank you, Tom. And um, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning. I have uh, met some of the folks in this room, but not everybody. Um, as you might know, I'm a little bit new to the job. Um, I started in my role here on in past, this past October. Um, so just a little bit about myself for the folks that I haven't met yet, and I really do look forward to meeting and working with everybody. Uh, I grew up in Easton, PA, which is just up the river about an hour. And uh, after graduating high school there, I went to school at New York, New York Maritime College, which is a great little engineering school in the Bronx, um, Merchant Marine School. And when I graduated electrical engineering, PSE&G came to campus and was interviewing, and I, I went to work for PSE&G in 1983 and have been there ever since, and I've had a great career with PSE&G. It's a great company, a great company to work for. One of the best things about the company is you get to work all over the place in the company, so I've really been um, moved around and have learned a lot about the business over the over the 30-something years. The last four or five years, I was on Long Island. We, four or five years ago, took over operation and maintenance and management of the Long Island uh, electric assets. So I left New Jersey for four or five years and then this past October uh, have moved back. And so it's great to be back in New Jersey where I've spent actually more years of my life than anywhere else. And uh, so it was a very exciting time this past year. Um, in, a, in September, just a month before, I had another very exciting uh, development in my life is that my oldest daughter had twins. And so I became a grandfather for the first time. And so between September and October last year, things were really going well. Um, and I, I've told people that, you know, it's really great to be uh, the president of PSE&G, but it's like a hundred times better to be a grandpa. And so if you would keep that in this room and delete that from the video, I'd appreciate that last comment, Tom. Um, and uh, so the role I'm into, which, uh, you know, I'm very, very proud and honored to have been selected for this role in this this great company with 115 year history. Um, I have a couple priorities as I look forward in the new role. Really they kind of fall into two categories. One of them is what we call operational excellence and continuing operational excellence. And at PSE&G we define that as being safe, our employees and our customers. It means being reliable and it means satisfying our customers. And we have a very strong track record in all three of those areas of operational excellence. So my first priority is to continue with that strong uh, tradition of excellence. And then the second priority is about the future. And looking at the tremendous changes that are happening, the really the transformation 
that is gonna happen in our industry over the next five to 10 to 15 years. And that's the window that we look at is in those three blocks. Tremendous forces of change that are coming, driven by a number of drivers. Number one, uh, changes in policy. Policy at the federal level, um, for a company like PSG particularly, changes in policy at the state level. And those policies basically directing this industry towards clean, moving away from coal and fossil towards renewable and clean. Secondly, the forces of technology and the tremendous pace and innovation in technology in the cost of renewables, the cost of solar, the cost of wind, the cost of battery storage. Battery storage, by the way, a technology which is poised to be in my view, the most disruptive technology this industry, if, if not the most destructive, among the most destructive technologies this in industry has ever experienced. So tremendous forces on the technology side. And then thirdly, the way the markets are structured and the changes that are gonna take place over the next um, years around taking a 100-year structure of integrated generation transmission to the customer and just basically turning it on its head We've started to deregulate the industry on the generation and commodity side, but over the next five to 10 years, the industry is gonna completely transform in terms of the fundamental structure, becoming much more distributed, introducing many, many more players. The role of the utility will certainly change. How it will change and how the new structure will come remains to be seen, but it's a tremendous force for change in our industry. And then the last uh, force of change is about the customer and what the customer is telling us, what the customer is demanding of us. Demanding, first of all, and first and foremost, to use less electricity to save money. The, the electricity that they use, to use clean electricity and have that electricity be reliable. And the customer expecting the benefits of technology, the technology innovation I described a moment ago, to flow to them, to allow for more distributed generation, which provides better resiliency and better reliability for technologies that allow us to do our job better, to do more effective storm restoration, and technologies which will give the customer choice and give the customer opportunities to implement technologies within their home, which will save them money. And so tremendous um, forces for change. So operational excellence, number one, and understanding these forces for change and how we um, are gonna uh, participate in those forces for change for the good of all in New Jersey. And PSE&G, as I said, a 115-year-old company that has changed and been a leader and been an innovator in the state. I, I am most proud of, of the fact that I think of PSE&G as the state's utility and a true corporate citizen in this state. And the responsibility that we have to live up to that uh, history and that um, tradition I take very, very seriously and very strong, as do all of the employees. Uh, as Buddy said, one of the reasons we are a great company is because of the partnership with the thousands of, of workers that Buddy leads and the partnership we have. It is a tremendous partnership and I truly do value it, uh, Buddy. And uh, Mayor Zimmer, I, um, I have met with your um, you know, succeeding, succeeding um, administration and all of the things that you talked about, I promise you we will follow through on those and finish those. Um, the daughter I had that had, uh, had the twins, she got married at the W in, in Hoboken, and my son lives in Hoboken as well, and so um, I'm very close to Hoboken as well. And so I promise you we will finish, finish that job. And um, so I'll conclude there, and hopefully we'll have a, some more questions in the roundtable. It's very much a pleasure to meet everybody and look forward to working with you into the future. Thank you.
Thank you, Dave. Uh, next up is, uh, we're going to go to Andrew oh, yeah. uh, Hendry at the New Jersey Utilities Association. Uh, sorry. Thank you very much, Tom. Again, I'm Andrew Hendry. Um, my association represents all of the investor-owned or the uh, private sector utility companies in the state. And um, I can't start any presentation without mentioning the fact that statewide, all of our companies um, employ almost 40,000 people. We have close to $3 billion in payroll. We provide about three quarters of a billion dollars in state and local tax revenues. And um, the most remarkable figure to me is in the last few years, our companies have been spending about $6 billion overall in the state on capital expenditures on CapEx investing in infrastructure in New Jersey. Um, and when you look at, for example, compare that to the, the budget for the Transportation Trust Fund for New Jersey, which is about $2 billion a year, if I remember correctly, and you get a sense of the, the magnitude of the impact that this industry can have on the state and how important it is for the state's economy. So as we talk about investments in terms of resiliency and the like, it's important to remember also that there's a significant economic benefit to this work as well. Um, I was uh, a, a longtime legislative staffer, as many of you know, so I was going to talk about stuff in kind of in my wheelhouse, like what was going on in Trenton, but I do feel um, that I, I need to, uh, to mention a couple things in the wake of the, the, the massive storms that we had. Um, and first of all, as you, you probably know, the, the Board of Public Utilities has announced it is going to conduct a, a, a thorough review of uh, what, uh, what went well, what didn't go well. Uh, you know, we welcome that and look forward to, to working with the, the Board on that. And we're very confident that Pre uh, President Fiordaliso is going to do that fairly and, and, and thoroughly. Uh, we recognize that, that people were, um, were very inconvenienced and a lot of uh, difficulties were caused by the outages associated with the storm. And we should always be working together to try and figure out ways to minimize the impacts of, uh, of storms like this. Uh, the, there were, in the wake of Hurricanes uh, Sandy and Irene, there were, about more, there were more, more than 100 specific directives that came out of the Board of Public Utilities um, that the utilities were required to follow both leading up to an expected storm and in, in the wake of the storm. Um, covers all aspects of storm response from how we report our estimated times of restoration, what the web trackers look like, the online outage trackers, you probably all have looked at, communication, vegetation management, AKA tree trimming, that's our euphemism for tree trimming, uh, mutual aid assistance and, and those kind of things. Um, and so while this was a terrible event, obviously, and we all feel that way, it does offer the opportunity for the utilities and the board to work together and look at those directives and see what worked well and, and what didn't uh, work well. And I, I think you'll probably uh, all agree that a significant part of that review, and I know Commissioner Fiordaliso has said this already, is going to be looking at the impact of, of trees and, and how we uh, address, um, from a sort of a policy perspective, uh, the, the uh, trees and how they impact the electrical grid. And um, is that is my little picture up there? I was going to show a, uh, it's all right, I can describe it, it's a tree. <laughs> so, but anyway, I thought I would use a little example clo close to home. So um, that's my neighbor's house. And it doesn't look quite as dramatic as the, t the top of the tree is chopped off. If I had taken the picture when the top of the tree wasn't chopped off, I wouldn't be here because the line was down in the street. Um, but this tree came down in the, in the first storm, took down the lines in my neighborhood. We were, we were down for about two days. Uh, the streets closed off and, and the like. Um, but that tree is 20 to 30 feet off the, the, the wire, the right of way. There were no branches overhanging the conductors. 
Um, and in fact, my neighbor told me that he had just had an arborist over to his house recently to look at some other trees, and he asked him about that tree, and he said, no, that tree's in great shape. <laughs> Yet, that tree was completely uprooted and took down the, uh, uh, the power in our neighborhood. And I, I make the point because, and I've already heard this, that there's, there's an assumption made, I think, that in the wake of, uh, of these kind of storms that not enough is being done in terms of vegetation management and tree trimming and the like. And this shows, I think, it's a lot more complicated than that. There are probably thousands of trees that are like this that are on private property, by the way, uh, which we can't simply walk on and, and, and take somebody's tree down. You can imagine how that would be. Trimming trees in and of itself is, um, uh, can be very controversial. But just to show some of the, the complexities of what I think we, ha we have to deal with in, in resolving this. Um, and the, I'm sure, as a, again, a former legislative staffer, there's going to be legislation introduced in, in the wake of the storms. There were quite a few bills that were introduced in the wake of, of Sandy and Irene. Um, for example, uh, the concept of undergrounding all the electric lines in the state always comes up around this time. I'm sure most of you know that that would cost many, many billions of dollars and uh, can actually be more difficult to find faults in a line, apparently, if uh, the engineers will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when they're underground. But I think it's important that, and hopefully the, the, the folks in this room and I see some legislative staff friends as well will recognize the benefit of allowing the board to go through its process and to look at the data and to work with the companies uh, in deciding what, what are the, the best next steps and which of those 100 directives that we already operate under are good and are what can be improved. Uh, and then just really quickly, again, back, so back to my wheelhouse, uh, what's going on in Trenton. And I, I, had, uh, I had warned um, the members of my board, of which uh, Dave is one, entering into the new administration to buckle up um, because the, uh, there has been a lot of pent-up desire in the legislature to do stuff that they deem significant on the utility and energy front and a feeling that they weren't able to do much in that respect for, for eight years. Um, and... Um, but I must say that I didn't expect the dam to break open this soon or as, as much as it, as it did uh, break open. Um, there, there's a lot of significant uh, legislation either moving or being considered that will affect the, um, the energy distribution systems in this state. Um, and it's not just, I mean, you've heard about the, the nuclear uh, bill, and I actually don't deal with the generation side of the business, so we don't have a, a position on, on that bill. But there was a lot that was added on to that bill as it's worked its way through the process. There's discussion of increasing the, the renewable portfolio standard and, and a discussion of perhaps increasing that to 100% um, by 2050. I'm sure many of you recognize that doesn't mean that there will be 100% of our energy generated in state uh, from renewable resources since most of the class one renewable energy credits are generated by out-of-state wind right now. But um, I digress. Um, discussion of an increase in, in a uh, SREC schedule the, and the idea of moving away from SRECs, energy efficiency mandates, about half states have these, the legislature's looking at that right now. Community solar, I saw Doug Ritz here and he represents uh, their interests, it's solar for folks that may not have a, a roof to, to put it on or, the, or uh, may need to have it remote from uh, where they, they, uh, they live or work. Um, and a number of bills that weren't tacked on to the nuclear bill. I know you had a discussion about electric vehicles. They have a lot of implications and potential benefits, something we're all very excited about. Um, deployment of smart meters has come up a number of times legislatively. Technology our industry generally supports, but we had concerns with doing it legislatively. I think we'll see more discussion of that in the wake of the storm as folks recognize that 
the only way, at least that I'm aware of, for a utility to know whether an individual customer is 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 on or not um, is is via smart meter, um, and uh, that tends to when that uh, is. Uh, understood in the legislature it tends to generate some more interest in smart meters, but there's controversy around them as well. Um, and uh, so anyway, an exciting time to be working on these issues in Trenton, a, a very broad variety of issues that could impact um, what we all do. Um, all of these issues are being so far considered um, without the context of an energy master plan to sort of um, uh, uh, lay out what the policy of the state is. And I know we all look forward to, to working together with the administration to see how all of these pieces will, will fit within the energy master plan and hopefully have them uh, begin development of that energy master plan soon. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, next up, Tom Gilbert, uh, campaign director, uh, Rethink Energy uh, coordinator for New Jersey Conservation Foundation. Thanks, Tom, and good morning, everyone. I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be on this timely panel, and um, I decided to wear my green tie today, uh, not just in preparation for St. Patty's Day, but because I'm going to offer a, a green perspective on, on energy infrastructure. So New Jersey is really at a fork in the road when it comes to energy. And as we see it, we can either continue down the current path investing in infrastructure that would prolong our use of polluting fossil fuels, or we can take a new path and invest in renewable sources of energy that will reduce emissions, clean our air, and create good jobs and spur new industries in New Jersey. Last year, we released research from national energy experts showing that the transition to clean, efficient, renewable energy is achievable, it's affordable, and it's absolutely essential to meet the state's long-term emission reduction targets under the Global Warming Response Act. And if, if you could switch to the next slide, please. This uh, chart from the Rutgers Climate Adaptation Alliance shows um, that we have a very long way to go to reach the targets and to reach deep decarbonization. And it will require uh, reductions of 75% uh, from today's emission levels. And you know, we must meet those targets. I mean, I think, you know, the evidence of climate change is, um, is increasingly all around us and impossible to ignore. From rising seas to more intense storms to more frequent flooding, uh, it, it's, it's just impossible to deny the evidence. And these intense weather events associated with climate change pose a major threat to our economy, public health and safety. And this is especially true in a, in a coastal state like New Jersey. And of course, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions is going to require action across many sectors, but we must take significant steps in the electric sector, which currently produces 21% of New Jersey's greenhouse gas emissions. And electric demand will only rise as we move to electrified transportation and ultimately heating. Next slide, please. This shows the, the breakdown of electric generation in New Jersey over the past several years. And you can see that roughly 40% of New Jersey's electricity comes from nuclear, uh, roughly half from natural gas, and a relatively small percentage from renewables. And so this means that the only way to reduce emissions from the electric sector to meet these targets is to reduce reliance on natural gas. 
that is the primary source of emissions from the electric sector, and to aggressively ramp up renewables and energy efficiency. Andrew referenced the legislation in Trenton. While we might agree that it's maybe not the ideal process to hammer out these kinds of uh, incredibly complex and far-reaching policies, I would say uh, we're feeling quite encouraged by the way the renewable energy bill is, uh, is now shaping up. The requirement for a, a RPS of 50% by 2030, 3,500 megawatts of offshore wind, uh, continued growth of solar, a new solar com uh, community solar initiative, energy efficiency portfolio standard, targets for energy storage. We believe that these are the right types of policies and investments to move New Jersey toward a clean energy future and ultimately toward the governor's goal of 100% clean energy by, by 2050. At the same time, we simply can't afford to make investments that will stand in the way of achieving these clean energy goals. Can you switch to the next slide, please? New Jersey is facing numerous proposals for new fracked gas pipelines and compressor stations uh, in, in many regions of the state. And the research is clear that there is no legitimate public purpose for many of these projects, including the Penn East Pipeline and the Southern Reliability Link. The New Jersey Rate Council has found no evidence of public need for Penn East and said building, building it would be unfair to ratepayers who would foot the bill. And this project appears to be driven by the opportunity to earn a guaranteed 14% rate of return for 15 years. Gas industry experts at Skipping Stone have found that there is a much shorter alternative to the Southern Reliability Link that would cost far less, but it was never considered. So building these unnecessary projects would saddle ratepayers with costs for decades, and they would increase New Jersey's reliance on polluting natural gas at a time when we must reduce reliance on gas to meet the targets under the Global Warming Response Act. According to FERC, Penn East alone would result in 21 million tons of CO2 emissions each year, and that does not account for methane leakage, which is a far more potent greenhouse gas in the short run. So while we can't afford to invest in unneeded new gas infrastructure, we do need critical improvements to existing infrastructure, and we would agree with what Buddy said in terms of you know, we need to look at uh, re uh, replacing those uh, 6,000 miles of aging iron and unprotected steel pipes that crisscross New Jersey that are a significant source of methane leakage, waste for consumers, and we can create a lot of good jobs in the process. In terms of costs, you know, yes, investing in a clean energy future will involve costs, but we also have to take an honest look at the cost of inaction and the benefits of moving to clean energy. Consider that storm damage costs 800 million annually already, and that cost is only going to rise as climate change worsens. And we can't ignore the impacts of harmful emissions to our health, particularly in urban areas of the state that are disproportionately affected by emissions. And in terms of benefits, energy efficiency will be a real driver of cost savings, and this can help to offset the initial uh, cost of the investments needed to scale up renewables. The cheapest form of energy is the energy that we don't use. And we, we need to be doing much more on energy efficiency. I see that as the low-hanging fruit. Ultimately, renewables, wind and solar, will be the most affordable energy sources as costs continue to fall from technological improvements. But we have to first make the investments now to realize these benefits down the road. 
And, and finally, building this, this clean energy infrastructure will create far more jobs, good jobs and long-term jobs, and spur new industries compared to maintaining the status quo. Last slide, please. So now is the time to make the right investments in renewables and in energy efficiency in order to achieve, in order to achieve a healthy, safe, affordable, and prosperous clean energy future, and there's no time to lose. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I guess there's some panelists who might uh, want to comment on those remarks. But first, we'll go to Steve Quinelli, a principal of um, Strategies for Clean Energy Innovation. Steve, thanks for coming. Yeah, and I, I'm going to stand up because okay. I'm going to point at my slides. <clears throat> So it is great to be here, and what a timely dialogue, and what a great panel to be part of. Um, I really think the, the key issues that we, you know, that I thought about in, after I got the request to talk about infrastructure in the energy sector is, well, what's the energy sector going to look like, you know, in, in 5, 10, 15 years? And David pointed out the very compelling and irresistible forces for change. I think, you're, you know, you're right on, and it's great to have executives of our local big utility thinking that way. Um, Don pointed out the resiliency uh, critical stuff, and I feel really lucky that I was only out for seven days after Hurricane Sandy and my, you know, having an electric uh, furnace fan. I, I got cold, and, uh, but I kept my sump pump running with a little generator. But it was a big pain. And that, that's just going to get worse, as Tom said. And I, I think the environmental mandates that we're all feeling as citizens, as decision makers, as family members, as individuals, and the legislative reflection of that in, in pushes for more clean energy and more transformation away from uh, the fundamental cause of many of these problems, which is too much CO2 and growing amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. I think all those forces are combining to change the way the industry looks. So I thought to get a sense of the, of the infrastructure needs of that changing industry, we should look at a few things. And I sort of thought how to, how to, how to beat California what they did without making all their mistakes as, as, as a title for this. Because um, it seems clear that this legislation that, that's pending is an effort by New Jersey to say, well, we can, we can see you and raise you, California, in terms of your clean energy goals. So let's, let's take a quick look at some of the key lessons learned in California. Next slide, please. I, I think most people have heard of this thing called the duck chart. And what it is, is you can see here, this is a day across here. And this, is, this top line is the amount of electricity load going through the day each hour. So high in the middle of the night, low in the early morning, higher in the middle of the day, and then higher again in the evening. And this, these lines show what happened is there's more and more wind and solar production. That means that the rest of the load that needs to be met by non-wind and solar resources gets smaller and smaller. Now, to really understand this and really to understand the whole electric industry, all you have to understand is the, what I call the fundamental law of reliability. And that's that the amount of electricity put into the grid at every minute needs to exactly equal the amount taken out of it by consumers every minute. Typically, we've done that by turning on and off fossil, power, fossil fuel or hydropower plants to just follow the load. But all this sun and wind turn itself on when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing and turns itself off when the sun goes down. So what we really have to do is we have less and less uh, 
other power plants to run. We have to turn off a whole bunch of power plants during the middle of the day and turn them all back on in the evening in California uh, to make to, to follow this law of reliability. Next slide. Now this was a project projection in 2012. Let's go ahead. This is from uh, last week, March 5th. Uh, and that previous slide, it showed that the, the minimum amount of load was about here. What's actually, in, in 2020, what's actually happened in 2018 is that the minimum amount of load is lower because there's a lot more solar and wind, especially solar in California, than people thought there would be in 2012. And this level is so low that a bunch of the other power plants that actually need to run typically for reliability are being, you know, if they, the plants that need to run for reliability and all the solar runs at the same time, there's too much. It violates the fundamental law of reliability. So next slide. So that leads to something called curtailment. Curtailment means, well, we, you know, it's like the California legislature said, let's build all this solar. Companies like the one I used to work for, NRG, uh, build a bunch of that solar, have contracts to run it. And then, then the, the grid operator comes along and says, you know what we got to do? We got to turn off your solar plant in the middle of the day. And this shows that, that last spring, 80,000 megawatt hours, 80,000 megawatt hours of renewable energy were curtailed during the month of April because there was too much because of that, that overproduction in the middle of the day. And this is at about 25% renewable energy. So when we think about goals to get to 50% or 70% or 80%, we have to realize that that can't actually be done without a much more careful approach. We can't just build more solar because we're gonna end up turning a whole bunch of it off during the middle of the day. And it won't be clean energy, it'll be expensive energy that's not running. So, um, next slide. So when we think about clean energy, and we think about what Tom said about the need to decarbonize, or we think about what David said, the fact that this stuff's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, we ha if we're serious about a clean energy economy, if we're serious about getting rid of carbon emissions in the time that the climate scientists say we have to, which is by the late middle part of this century, another 40 years has to be gone globally, we have to think big and we have to think about ways to not have all the renewable energy for our region, in this case California, produced during a few hours in the middle of the day. Instead, some of it has to come from wind in other parts of the country that blows mostly at night. Some of it has to come from geothermal. Some of it has to come from hydro that can be turned on and off when the sun goes behind a cloud or the wind stops blowing. And that's true on a continental scale. All of these pieces of the puzzle have to be used to solve the clean energy problem or we won't be able to solve it. We'll just be building a bunch of stuff and turning it off when it produces too much and running gas during those other times. So this is a big part of the problem or the solution is to think globally or at least continentally about um, renewable energy. And that means changing the way we think about transmission, more transmission to hook all those things up. That's the infrastructure implication. Next slide. But that's not all we need to do. In California, the California ISO came up a year or so ago with these, I think there's eight things to do, you know, about this problem. One, more storage. We've got, in this legislation, there's a mandate to study storage, which is a good idea. Batteries are gonna be really disruptive, I agree with David, if, they, if and when they get really cheap. They're not quite really cheap yet. Demand response. Turning on and off electricity, 
not to save energy, but to use more when there's too much sun and wind and to use less when there's not enough. Using energy use like a power plant. Uh, time of use rates, telling people that when there's really cheap energy, it means there's way too much clean energy and they should use more of it. And when there's not enough, it's really expensive and they should use less. Uh, getting rid of plants that need to produce energy just to stay in operation and need to be running for reliability and changing those into more flexible resources. Having a big regional market. This is one of California's top goals, is to get a regional market outside of the state. Uh, regional coordination, coordinating with those other states on transmission, on demand response, on flexible load, on solving all the pieces of the puzzle cooperatively. Electric vehicles, charging electric vehicles in the middle of the day in California would be a great idea. Charging electric vehicles in the middle of the night in the Great Plains where the wind blows at night would be a great idea. So far, we're not really thinking about it that way. And finally, very flexible resources, whether it's batteries or a few gas-fired power plants or all these other things, and getting rid of inflexible resources that can't move, uh, move their output to match um, the changes in the wind and the sun. Those are the, the things that California is recommending. We've got one of those. We've got PJM. We've already got a big regional market. That's the only one of these things that New Jersey has got. And except for this little study thing in storage, it's really the only thing that this new legislation, well, it, the new legislation mentions PJM because the existing legislation does. But um, it, these other things have not yet been tapped by New Jersey. We need to tap these things and get going on these things so we can actually realize a reliable, efficient, low-cost, clean energy future. Um, next slide. So kind of to sum this up, you know, the old saying, think globally, act locally. We have to do both. Thinking globally means generation and transmission have to be thought about on a region-wide scale. We have to think not only about PGM, but about, about New York, New England, the, the southern seaboard states. We have to think about all those things as part of New Jersey's solution and New Jersey as part of theirs. And then thinking locally, we have to think about what is in New Jersey. It's the resiliency problems and the flexible load problems. Every water heater could be an energy storage device. Every furnace could be an energy storage device. Every air conditioner can be an energy storage device, not just batteries. And they can actually match load to generation since we can't have a bunch of generation that we can't control anymore to match to load, sun and wind. Two, we need to decarbonize not just the power supply, but the whole economy. So why don't we think about decarbonizing heating, like water heating and space heating, and refrigeration, and replacing them with flexible electric technologies. Meaning, let's stop burning gas to heat my water and my house and my food and start burning electricity in ways that we can control it. So use it when the offshore wind is blowing and not use it when it isn't. This will reduce carbon faster. It'll avoid stranding more gas infrastructure. As Tom pointed out, it'll integrate more renewables better. It'll be cheaper storage than batteries. It will enhance indoor and outdoor air quality, health, and safety. And it's time to start now because this is a big set of transformation. It's kind of beyond the smart grid to the smart appliance, the smart home, the smart building. Finally, uh, three, we can implement, we should implement real-time pricing. We should be doing that now at the BPU so that whatever the prices are in PJM, our consumers are seeing them or are able to use more when it's cheap, use less when it's expensive, and deploy all the smart technologies that are crowding the marketplace. I mean, Alexa wants to help us save energy, you know, so we should let her do it. Um, 
And finally, we should coordinate, since we already have the regional market, the number one thing that California wants and feels they need to make their clean energy program work is a regional market across multiple states. We've already got that with PGM. We need to coordinate as a state more with PGM and more with other states on all of these things and in our development and implementation of the energy master plan. So those are the, those are the things we need to do to get infrastructure right for a clean energy economy. Thank you, Dave. <coughs> Thank you, Steve, I'm sorry. Uh, well, that was very interesting. And uh, uh, let me just uh, ask Dave to um, reflect on some of the comments that Steve made, I mean, Steve made, uh, particularly about, we do have this in, uh, regional grid operator, PJM. Are they, uh, are they in tune to do the kinds of things he says? Because it seems to make sense. Yeah, that was um, very, very interesting, very insightful, Steve. Um, I think so. I mean, I, when I think of um, yeah, transmission and the role of transmission, um, it's not often that um, there's as much emphasis on it uh, in terms of enabling the future than what I heard here, which is why I think this, this panel is really, you know, a very strong subject because sometimes transmission gets lost in, that's the old, and it is such an important enabler of the future. Um, starting on the one end, um, you know, the, Brattle did a study, they, they, they called it, um, you know, the, the transmission is the, is the network of highways that moves cars. For, for transmission, it's the network that moves electrons. Um, but to some extent, even within PJM, um, our transmission system is like the state roads and the county roads. It's not yet like the interstate highway. And if you carry your, your point to um, think continental, and where the future is going in terms of transmission infrastructure, it's, it's transmission across those, those markets um, with superconductors and much higher voltages with much uh, smaller losses, voltages up to 1200 kV and superconductors that have you know, almost you know, zero impedance and have the benefit um, of almost infinite imp impedance when you have a fault. And so these technologies to connect almost continentally to um, to do the things that enable the things you just described um, uh, in your comments. So on the one end, and then on the other end, um, you know, more locally uh, in terms of transmission, um, the hardening issues, particularly for New Jersey and the fact that we are coastal. Um, the program that Buddy talked about, Energy Strong, we have been raising uh, some of our infrastructure. We raise it to the 100-year uh, storm level plus a couple feet. Um, and we've done some of that work, we have more to do. Um, looking at design and construction standards that PJM is implementing to put up stronger hardware that will withstand um, um, more of the elements in the weather. And, um, and we call it life cycle at PSE&G, which is replacement of aged infrastructure. Some of this infrastructure is just simply old. The, um, the program that we're, we're describing, which is our next set of infrastructure on the energy side, on the electric side, Energy Strong 2, is replacing equipment in our, we call them our class A, B, and sub C substations. If you drive around New Jersey, uh, you'll, you see sometimes these fenced-in substations, and you'll see brick buildings in some of them. Whenever you see a brick building, that's our oldest stations. They're the class A and class B. 
The equipment in those stations, on average, is 93 years old. It's 4KV equipment that was installed almost 100 years ago. And we call it, it's time to reach its, it's, reached its end of life. You know? And then the B and the C, which is the newer stuff, um, that 93-year-old stuff is inside the building. We also have equipment that's outside that's on average 80 years old. And so um, there's very significant um, need to change out just infrastructure that is aged on the other end. And PGM is very much attuned to that as well. And then there's the whole issue of um, you know, advanced technologies, which um, perhaps we can get into um, with, um, as we go forward in the, with the panel. But I think PGM is very attuned to it. I think on both ends, um, both thinking continentally and then thinking locally, um, the, um, the process, I think, works pretty well at PJM in terms of the planning and having that view. Well, I'm a little skeptical because aren't you guys involved in several fights with New York State over transmission and uh, sharing, of course? And it sounds to me like what Steve is talking about and what Tom talked about and you're talking about, there's going to be <clears throat> a huge amount of investment. That, that is needed to make the transmission system able to integrate all these new technologies coming online. On to, uh, not even mentioning smart meters and making this, uh, the grid smarter. Yeah, well, that yeah, and and you know when you think of transmission, it has. It has a very, very broad reach in terms of its benefits. And so there is, um, when you have transmission lines, for example, we built a, a line that was a 500 kV line, or Susquehanna Roseland, um, went in service a couple of years ago. Um, that was about 150 mile line, started in Pennsylvania. Um, solved many, many problems, saved $60 million a year in congestion costs. But along the way, benefits a whole lot of people. So there's a process that PGM uses and the ISO uses, which is, uh, it's called the beneficiary pays. And so it's, a, it's an engineering calculation that is the best estimate we can have to say the folks that benefit from these technologies should contribute to paying. And so it's a sharing of costs. And that, of course, can sometimes lead to um, folks thinking they're getting a little bit more than their fair share. But I think generally it's a process that recognizes that these benefits of these transmission investments, which cover broad areas and bring benefits to broad areas, um, should be shared. And so it's not without um, a little bit of um, back and forth when the costs of a project get um, allocated through that process. But I think it's a process that, and particularly in PJM, has a very strong track record of, of working well and getting transmission built. Because there was a period of significant underinvestment in transmission in the 1990s and very early 2000s because you didn't have these markets set up to develop these projects and get this work done. And I think the only thing that is more um, uh, risky than um, some of the things that were just talked about is doing nothing. And so um, I think it's a good process and, and it's a stakeholder process with a lot of transparency. And that transparency leads to um, some back and forth, but at the end of the day, things get done. Anybody else want to jump in there? Well, you know, I, I just, I, I want to make one other point, which is the transmission, in addition to the benefits, you know, well-designed transmission that's easy to get FERC approval for, 
and RTO support for and stakeholder support for usually does create benefits. It saves people money by bringing cheaper energy in for a longer period of time than what they're paying for already. So it, it's, it costs money, but it also saves money. The other thing about this new future is that the, 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 the local part of it is that it's, you could think about the, the chart that Tom put up showing that the major problem from a CO2 perspective in New Jersey is natural gas plants. There's every reason to think that a combination of all the sort of flexible load stuff between you know, air conditioners, running them at the right time, water heaters, heating water at the right time, freezing ice when the energy's cheap and using it to air condition when energy's expensive. Those things can, they're very flexible and when you can do it. It's because you control when you use the converted energy rather than when you, when, you know, when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. So if you can control that and couple it together with renewables, you essentially have a hybrid or a virtual power plant that's like a new natural gas plant in terms of its operating characteristics. The renewables might be coming through PJM from, from uh, you know, Iowa or Minnesota or South Dakota, uh, but, or they might be located right here. But putting them together with flexible load would allow New Jersey to have virtual power plants that would provide many of the reliability services that we got out of our current natural gas fleet without burning the gas and providing many of those distributed resources are also part of the resiliency solutions that Mayor Zimmer was talking about. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, a new solution to the generating side of the equation is to combine flexible load with renewables. And while the transmission and the renewables may be elsewhere, the flexible load part, the resilient part, and the hardened and improved control systems and delivery systems, those are all investments in New Jersey that create jobs and customer savings here and customer benefits. So it's not like transmission means all the money's going somewhere else. It means that this new kind of stuff creates net benefits and growth in New Jersey, even if the generation or some of the generation is coming from you know, a continental location. Yeah, and I, I just, just very quickly, because I think, you know, when you take a look at the value of transmission and the types of projects that uh, we're building, um, you know, we, we think of the traditional ways to think of the value, which is bringing in lower cost power from a different uh, area. So saving on energy, saving on capacity, saving on congestion. I mentioned that project saves $60 million a year. But there are many, many more. In fact, when we look at the value of transmission, we come up with 30 different ways you can put a dollar value that we don't always put the, put the dollars on. Um, beyond what we just, you know, congestion, energy capacity, just the value of, which is real value, of um, removing uncertainty in day-ahead bid prices related to weather and load forecast errors. The, the ability to have lower costs in the ancillary services markets uh, the ability to have less cycling on power plants, which raises costs. Um, the greater reliability, being able to operate with a, a smaller reserve margin, making public policy uh, cheaper. The, the, the exciting platform that the new administration has put forth is going to cost less um, because of transmission. And if we do more transmission, jobs, just tremendous amounts of jobs, and then, you know, very project-specific values. Typically, when you look at the value of these transmission projects, they have easily a three to four times benefit-to-cost ratio when you actually look at the true value of these, these investments. And the more these transmission lines um, connect 
distant markets and these distant resources, the higher that value grows. Sure, Tom. So I, I would agree that we, we absolutely need to look at uh, investments in transmission infrastructure that will improve resiliency and that will better integrate renewables into the grid. Um, but at the same time, we have to be careful to separate out the projects that are truly needed from projects that, you know, might be driven solely by the opportunity to earn, you know, return on capital. And I think there's, um, you know, there's an example of that, uh, the JCPNL Monmouth County uh, Reliability Project, where administrative law judge recently ruled uh, in fairly uh, strong ruling that, you know, they found no no need for the project, that, that alternative corridors um, and non-transmission alternatives had not been seriously considered. So somehow we need a better system to really sort out what investments are truly needed versus, uh, you know, what are, are being, you know, kind of driven largely by, uh, by the financial incentives that exist. Andrew wants to. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is my understanding is that Monmouth, the Monmouth County transmission line was deemed necessary by PJM because it was a reliability violation uh, in that area that that line was meant to address. So I guess it's, it's all relative who, uh, yeah, what's uh, considered necessity. I mean, I would consider the folks that, that run the regional grid and are responsible for reliability making that determination as, as uh, you know, who I would defer to. Okay, uh, those points raise a question that I was going to ask and uh, somebody in the audience also raised. And Tom brought it up in his initial comments. Uh, there's a lot of pipelines being proposed to be built around New Jersey. There's been uh, some studies by the Union Concerned Scientists that suggest that uh, these pipelines might end up being a stranded course to have to be absorbed by ratepayers because, uh, as Tom argues uh, and, and Rate Council uh, suggested, they're, uh, they're not needed. So uh, well, what's your thoughts, uh, Andrew and Dave, about um, this whole issue? Are we overbuilding? Uh, the need for uh, new natural gas pipelines when at the same time we're trying to reduce our reliance on natural gas. So um, a little outside my wheelhouse, I certainly can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tom on the specifics of pennies. That would be uh, appropriate to have pennies up here, I think, to have that debate. But what I will say is I do know that during the latest cold snap that we had, that the, 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 the price um, for natural gas in the, uh, the hub in Pennsylvania was 31 times, I think, what it was in New Jersey because of a, uh, a transmission constraint to get that natural gas here. Um, and so the, the reality is that there are, um, there are capacity constraints at that time now. And we certainly don't want to end up in the situation that Massachusetts is, is facing now, given the uh, um, the resistance to the, the building of natural gas transmission up there. In fact, they are in the uh, have or are in the process of shipping in liquefied natural gas from Russia um, because of the fact that they have insufficient supply of natural gas up in that region. Um, I think that. Yet, unfortunately, my my friends who uh, um, oppose some of these projects let the the perfect be the enemy of the immediate good in some respects. 
Um, the, uh, again, uh, I can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe on the individuals of the, of the specific project, but, um, the, uh, but there is definitely an issue with capacity constraints, and as we face more severe weather, that's more likely to become an issue. Um, and so the, with, with a, a future where we have more renewable energy and, um, you know, and, and, and we're moving away from that, we also have to recognize that, that uh, you know, the current situation that we face um, and, uh, and, and, and in addition to looking at emissions, look at the impact on the ratepayers. Look at, uh, an estimate was that uh, ratepayers uh, during the latest cold snap because of that uh, uh, transmission constraint paid about $300 million more um, uh, businesses and, and uh, power generation in New Jersey. Uh, and those are immediate issues that, that we have an obligation to address too. Just to, um, to your question, Tom, I don't think we are overbuilding. Um, and here's how we th I think about it. This kind of, you know, when I talked about, you know, maintaining operational excellence and thinking about the future, this one kind of falls into the first category of, you know, maintaining our operational excellence. For PSE&G, we have uh, 1.8 million gas customers. We have, the state of New Jersey has five major pipelines that supply the state. Those pipelines come from Texas, from directly to the west in Pennsylvania, and from the southeast. There's five of them. And what we do is we do studies of um, the, it is really is a resiliency issue. And what we look at is what would happen if those pipelines went down? The two biggest pipes we have are Transco and Texas Eastern. And the most recent studies we did, the way we do them is we, we just simulate what would happen if one of those pipes went down and then two of those pipes. But we took the biggest pipe and we said, what would happen if that pipe went down? And this is not PSE&G's issue now, this is the pipeline's issues. And we look at it and we say, how many customers, how many gas heating customers would not have gas? And we look at it if, if the temperature was 30 degrees and 20 degrees, 10 degrees and five degrees. And so the worst case scenario is the five degree day. And when we run that and we, the, the, the analysis we did most recently in the last couple of months is that if we lost the largest pipe on a five degree day, there would be 500,000 New Jersey PSE&G customers who would have no heat on a five degree day. And when you look at the types of failures that occur on these pipes, one of them occurred two years ago in 2015 on that very pipe. We were very fortunate to that, that failure, which took that pipe out for four months, occurred in the late spring. And so we weren't anywhere near. If that failure had happened on a five degree day, that very failure, we would have 500,000 customers without any heat in that kind of temperatures. Um, further, you would have constraints going to the power plants that um, as much as it, you know, we think it's gonna change over time, rely on natural gas to fire power plants. And so there could be very significant power outages. And so when I think about pipeline capacity, um, I think about it from the point of view of resilience. And I don't think about it in terms of the integrity of PSG system. When we had the, uh, the weather in early January this year, which was, as we all remember, was one of the coldest uh, winters, you know, I remember talking to, um, uh, at the time, President Morose, and he asked me, you know, how's your system holding up? What are you worried about? And I told him, I said, President Morose, I am not worried about the PSE&G system. What I'm worried about is those pipelines. Because if we lose one of those pipelines over the next two weeks, we are in deep trouble. 
And so um, one of the projects we're looking at that we can do to mitigate the situation I just described is as those five pipelines come into New Jersey, we could do a little bit better work interconnecting our system so that if we lost that pipe, the customers up here that wouldn't have heat could flow a little bit more power that's coming in through the other four. So there are some things we can do on our system which would mitigate those numbers. But um, whenever I think about um, more capacity coming in, I think about it from the point of view of resilience and I don't see it as, um, and I do, I do, you know, I appreciate your point, Tom, about we want to make sure we're doing the right projects. When I think about gas pipeline projects and I think about 500,000 customers, I, th that's where I'm coming from on it. And I think uh, in some of those cases, it really is um, prudent. So just a couple points in response. I guess the first thing I would point to is that during this recent record cold snap, um, PJM's assessment of, of how the grid performed following that was that the grid performed uh, very well. And the only issue they pointed to was the need for some pricing reform. So there was, there was no sense of any concerns with, with, with pipelines during, again, a, you know, a record, a record cold spell. So that's, a, that's, that's one indication that we're, you know, we're, we're in good shape in terms of the infrastructure that we have. The second thing is that um, following that, again, that recent cold snap, um, international gas experts at Skipping Stone took a very close look at the flow of gas um, in our region and the pricing issues that Andrew alluded to and found some very interesting things. Essentially, they found that even on the coldest day in that cold snap, that there was 1.7 billion cubic feet of gas that was flowing out of zone six, which serves New Jersey, into zone five, points to the south, at, at lower cost, right? So even on the coldest day, we had 1.7 billion in excess capacity that wasn't needed in New Jersey. And that doesn't include, there's another 1.3 billion cubic feet of capacity that is, will come online upon completion of the Atlantic sunrise. So then that would be 3 billion cubic feet of excess capacity that's not needed in New Jersey. Penn East would bring in another billion, so then we'd have 4 billion cubic feet of excess capacity in New Jersey. Now, while there were, there were price spikes, the reason for those price spikes is that there is a lack of uh, peak day delivery capacity into New York City, right? So, so that's an issue. But bringing more capacity into New Jersey does nothing to address that issue and thus would do nothing to affect the price spikes that occurred. So could, could I jump in with a comment? I, a lot of times people talk about the power business these days like inventing the airplane while we're flying it or maybe rebuilding it, you know, converting it from a prop to a jet plane while we're flying it. And David's point about the, the operational requirements uh, of, run, of being, you know, a power provider, are, I think everybody has to respect those, especially when the company catches a lot of flack, you know, when a bunch of trees fall on lines and stuff, so, which is also understandable. Um, but I think there's, there's a, a parallel obligation, which is to think ahead. And when I hear about, you know, the potential of being without gas because of a uh, Texas Eastern failure or something like that for, for days and hundreds of thousands of us, it makes me want to get rid of my gas stove, my gas water heater, and my gas furnace. 
and replace them with something electrical. Um, and, uh, you know, I, maybe I can't do that right away because that's a, a pain. Maybe if, if the, the state and the utilities got together and had a sort of public-private partnership, like the mayor mentioned, to, to help customers decarbonize their home heating and to make it more resilient by electrification, I'd be more likely to do that. And, you know, as many of us might do that as we've put in Generax in the last, since Sandy, which is a lot of New Jerseyans, to have backup power. And that, that might be in parallel to whatever you're doing to sort of, you know, cross tap from one pipeline to another might be a parallel responsible thing for, for helping us avoid being without heat, hot water, or cooking uh, during a long period of a pipeline failure and help us get off of gas, which after all is a, you know, is a major source of anthropogenic CO2. We're going to have to get off of it in the next 20 or 30 years anyway from a climate change perspective, and providing more flexibility and resiliency to the system. So I'm not sure there's so much an or, although I certainly understand people might say this particular pipeline that's going through Pennington, where I live, you know, isn't really needed. Um, but if it is needed or something is needed to, to keep the heat on for the next five years, we also, I think, need to be thinking ahead about how to just to move beyond gas for everything except sort of backup emergency critical uses, which the existing infrastructure and better infrastructure like plastic pipes instead of old cast iron pipes can provide. Okay, uh, sort of along those lines, I have a question from the audience. Uh, please speak to current efforts or plans to install grid modern modernization technologies that will make the system uh, more efficient, integrate renewables, and save money. Anybody want to jump in on that? Yeah, I, I actually have some thoughts about that. You know, for years, I think the, the way we've, we've heard people talking about this and heard ourselves talking about it, if we talk about it, is smart grid and smart meters. And um, th there's a lot to be said there. You know, Andrew's point that uh, you, you know, for a utility company to really know if their customers have power or not, they need some sort of, you know, sensing device associated with the meter to tell what's, whether stuff's flowing through it or not. To restore power quickly and clear faults more efficiently, there needs to be automatic switching equipment on the distribution system. Um, but a lot of the stuff that is flexible, that is exciting about flexible, like smart thermostats, uh, smart uh, energy storage systems, smart inverters for rooftop solar and batteries, um, they run on the internet. You know, that's how they're optimized. All these, you know, Amazon Web Services or Tendril or these, these companies that do the optimization stuff, get the data off the internet, they send the control signals through the internet, um, they get their data about how much is being used through the internet. Um, and they can make the internet very secure against hacking and poaching and interference uh, with those kinds of services. So it's, to me, the next wave of this stuff is not just smart grid and smart meters, it's also smart appliances, smart homes, and ultimately smart customers that use digital stuff to help, help manage our energy and integrate renewables just the way we use digital stuff to, you know, not buy CDs anymore. It's like I got it in my pocket. It's my smartphone. It's my smart portal. It's my smart devices. And a bunch of companies that are competing like crazy to help me save money and to make money by integrating renewables better. So we need to get into that, you know, beyond just the grid and the meter. We need to get beyond the meter and let comp 
competitive companies and competitive technologies you sort of blow that, that uh, target out of the water with amazing new stuff. <coughs> Unfortunately, the Board of Public Utilities hasn't really embraced some of these technologies. They've only approved uh, uh, initial small uh, smart meter project for Rockland Electric. But the board, board of Public Utilities doesn't have anything to say with whether I, my Google smart speaker or my Alexa device helps me save energy, you know, so. Yeah. Um, and, and I would approve companies making investments in, in, in smart grid technology and, and routing around faults and, and those kind of things. Um, while the uh, smart meters, well, I'm oh, sorry, Dave. Um, while, while smart, smart meters themselves have only just begun to be deployed in New Jersey and, and advanced metering infrastructure, remember they're one component of an entire infrastructure that has to be built out um, too, and we are very far behind other states um, in, in that respect. I just don't think that um, you can just look at that in isolation in terms of some of the other investments that the companies are making that are, sort of, that are smart grid related. Yeah, and I was going to say that, um, you know, I, I, I look at myself and I say I need to do a better job explaining the value proposition of some of these technologies, for example, AMI. You know, we often think about AMI as um, creating labor savings as you don't have to send somebody out to read a meter or you don't have to send somebody out to do a turn on or a turn off. But um, we don't do, I think, or maybe haven't done as good a job in talking about once you have that information and the, the analytics that it provides you around the load profile, the, the, the true customer characteristics that, um, you know, there's a there's a acronym called MAPE, which is a mean average projection error. It's basically the load forecast error that we have in the system. The industry average is about 3%. In areas where AMI has been implemented, where you have that detailed load profile, they take that, that uh, error from 3% down to a half a percent. That is just bottom line dollars of flow right to customers. And then the piece about um, the smart home and providing these, these options and these analytics around smart homes and smart devices, it's all connected. Um, you know, AM, I think of AMI as a technology platform that, yeah, by the way, it gets you a meter read, but it also provides tremendous uh, value to the system operators to operate closer to the edge and get rid of all this um, error that is in cushion that they have to build in and giving the customers. And then on the other end, just um, you know, some of these technologies I mentioned at the beginning are just so exciting. And I think there is strong support at the, uh, at the, the commission. Um, for example, I, I mentioned you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning, moving towards what we call fully automated substations. Right now we have folks that go out, it's very manual to go out and inspect substations to do work, take readings, analyze readings manually. And you know, the leading edge that we're talking to the commission about is, they're fully automated. They implement, um, first of all, you know, the most sophisticated imaging technologies, cameras that can zoom, that are trained on every piece of equipment in the station, that use artificial intelligence built on a very advanced platform to gather data on every piece of equipment and to do predictive analytics using artificial intelligence. And then with those analytics to feed that into machine learning algorithms that basically self-heal. So when there's a fault, that the, the algorithms can quickly understand whether it was a transient fault or whether it was a, a, a permanent fault. And basically can put that um, tiebreaker, tie for example, that might have tripped out back in service like that. Whereas today, we've got to send you know, a whole bunch of people out there. We've got to analyze it and basically customers out for a very long time. And so 
there's tremendous technologies that are going to make the grid smarter, it's going to save money, and it's going to make it a better uh, experience for customers. Same types of examples you could use for storm response and, and so on. So I do think it's part of my job is to be down at the commission more often, talking to the commissioners, explaining to the, not only showing up when I want something, but just showing up to say, I want to talk to you about some of the leading um, technologies that are out there and, and together, you know, becoming more um, aware of these technologies, talking about the strategy, how does it fit into the state's policy, how does it, how does it um, um, integrate in, and, and together being a little bit more of a partner. And so I do, I do put a little bit of responsibility on myself to, um, to, do, to advance that. Buddy, what, the, what does this uh, portend for your uh, members? Uh, what is the role of the uh, uh, labor in this new utility of the future? In terms of technology? Yes, I mean, I know you've testified against smart meters. Uh, uh, we were just hearing uh, talk about automating substations. Uh, where, where, where does labor fit in into uh, the future of a uh, radically different utility? So um, it varies. I'll take um, what we did under Energy Strong. Um, the job creations that were there, the, uh, the largest classification that we um, uh, increased was that of uh, the relay technicians. So we had uh, different relays that were put in there, uh, skater relays and other type relays that would enable the company to manage the stability of the grid, identify outages in a more timely manner for, for response to increase. So we, uh, I would argue 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we we're talking about infrastructure upgrades. We would be talking about the lineman or the linewoman classification. That wasn't the case this time around. So we've seen a technology change there in a bit. Uh, some on the gas side as well. Uh, regarding the, the automated meters or the smart meters, we actually came out um, in opposition to it. Uh, we came out in opposition to it for a couple reasons. Understanding the technology and there's efficiencies tied to it, and they're not my members, but there are anywhere from 400 to 600 members of another local union on the property that represent the people. And the, the simple answer to it is um, technology, in some people's eyes should outweigh certain jobs. Um, what I don't think the people realize is, is the, the employees that are out in the field that are doing jobs such as that. They're not just going out and reading meters and reporting back numbers on a meter. They have a presence in the community. Uh, the program we started over 30 years ago with public service, we called it, and it was, it was uh, recognized by the governor at the time, it was called the Child Watch Program. 
So you have children in some of these communities where they have uh, incidents and they could come up to a utility worker and um, in essence they could facilitate uh, issues identified with lost children or children that are missing and, and get authorities involved. They report um, buildings that are being inhabited with uh, diverted uh, electricity or things of that nature. So they do a lot more in the communities than just read meters. And I think that's a, a big thing that's overlooked or not recognized by either uh, the general public or, or, or the legislatures in general. You know, just to build on that, um, when we look at these, these changes that are coming and some of these changes impact who does work, what work they do, how many are required, we always do it with a partnership. And the, um, what we're looking at is an industry that is fundamentally transforming and there's gonna be jobs in the future that simply don't exist today. And so to the extent we have this, as Buddy says, this dedicated workforce that's out there reading meters. People you know, give the keys to their house to these meter readers. Uh, that's how much they trust them. Um, there's new jobs, there's clean energy jobs. We are so strongly in favor of energy efficiency and the tremendous uh, low hanging fruit that exists with energy efficiency. We calculated that's gonna create 20,000 new jobs. jobs, job classifications that simply don't exist today. So everything we're talking about doing, we do with a very strong partnership um, with, with labor. And that's just the, the way we work and nothing's gonna change on that. And it's a bright future for everybody. It's a really exciting future. Sure. I just want to echo that in terms of the, the job opportunities, I think, associated with the clean energy future. And on, on energy efficiency, according to an analysis by E2, there are already over 30,000 jobs in New Jersey tied to energy efficiency. And that's with New Jersey achieving you know, fairly modest energy efficiency levels now as we really ramp that up. Um, there's significant opportunities there. And even with relatively modest renewable energy in the state, there are already three times as many jobs tied to solar and wind, primarily solar, than tied to, to fossil fuel generation in the state. So as, as we transform uh, you know, the energy paradigm in the state, maybe there are, in some cases there could be concerns about loss of jobs tied to automation, but I think when you look at the bigger picture, it's, it's, there's enormous upside for, for job creation and, and economic impact. Okay, um, talking about energy efficiency, uh, the, that's a big part of the bill that's going, the clean bill that's going through the legislature. There's debate over what role utilities and how big a role they should play in it. There's some who argue that uh, uh, energy efficiency is uh, maybe uh, better put in the hands of small private and or even big companies that are used to innovation and move in more nimbly than utilities. Want to take a shot at that? Sure, engine? I'll take an initial shot at it. Um, 
I, I think a lot of our companies would argue that, that we're ideally situated to, um, to encourage and, and to uh, encourage customers to, uh, to use and, and to deploy energy efficiency uh, measures. Dave spoke earlier about the fact, the, the trusting relationship that a lot of customers have with the company and letting their, their meter reader into the home. Um, we have a connection to the, the home already, um, the bill and, and, and a whole bunch of other ways that we already communicate with, uh, with customers that ideally situate utilities to, um, to be able to, um, to encourage en energy efficiency. I think that one of the, the key things that, that we have to do on a, on a policy level um, to ensure its success is to look at the, um, the rate making structure in New Jersey. Uh, and the fact that there's an inherent disincentive in the rate-making structure for utilities to deploy energy efficiency uh, and, and those technologies because uh, return is based upon the number of kilowatt hours or, or, or therms uh, sold or revenue is, rather. Um, and what a lot of other states have done, and in fact, if you look at the, the list, the ranking of ACEEE's list of states that are most successful with energy efficiency programs, um, they're all decoupled. Uh, to some extent or the other, so that to some extent the relationship between uh, the revenue utility earns and the amount of energy that it's sold um, has been uh, disconnected to, to some extent. And um, I think it's, there's going to be a lot of continued debate about that. There is existing um, authority in New Jersey statute um, for, uh, for some decoupling um, or lost revenue adjustments for um, for renewable energy and energy efficiency related programs. In fact, South Jersey Gas and New Jersey Natural Gas are, are partially decoupled um, at this point. But that's gonna be an important policy consideration as well to ensure that um, utilities can uh, successfully um, help to promote energy efficiency and remain viable and important partner um, as energy efficiency uh, takes off in the state. I just, um, it's one of the areas that gets me the most excited. Just, uh, you know, the governor's goals are about 2% savings on electric. Um, I think it was started at um, about around 1% for gas. And um, in parallel with the, the new administration coming on, we had developed a program that um, we haven't come forward yet with, but um, was achieving similar types of, of goals and um, of 2% and 1%. And if you look at where that stacks up, um, currently, New Jersey ranks, if you look at, if you rank the 50 states, um, we're usually around 44th or 50, 45th, meaning five or six from the bottom uh, at about 0.4%. And so we don't stack up real well. And if you look at, you know, the top companies, and they are in Massachusetts and California, um, Chicago ComEd has, has just entered in. Um, what are they achieving? They're achieving about 3% today. Um, but they're getting a lot of that savings from old um, uh, lighting that's going to go away. And so if you really ask yourself, what is the true leading edge of targets for energy efficiency on electric and gas? It is about 2% 1%. And so New Jersey, under the administration's targets, is positioned to be a true industry leader. And um, it saves money. We did very, very detailed analyses of it. It saves hundreds of millions of dollars per year. And so it's a direct offset to the cost of these infrastructure programs that are so critical that Buddy's um, working on in the gas pipeline and the energy strong raising the substations. Those things are needed and have true value, but energy efficiency is a true offset to those today. And so it's, it's it, it, the, the electric, somebody said the, um, 
the electron that's not used is the best um, way to, to avoid that cost is so true. And um, so I think, you know, the governor's uh, targets are right on. They're going to put us right from, from fifth from the bottom right to one, two, or three. And that's where we belong. Um, that's where we should be. And the opportunity is really there. All right. Uh, it's uh, about 1020 or so. Um, I guess we should wrap this up. Uh, I want to thank. I, first, I want to apologize. I didn't, as always, I didn't get to half the questions from the audience, but I didn't get to half my questions either. I didn't even get to ask Dave about uh, the stipulated settlement on the gas modernization program. So uh, I guess I'll have to tackle them later. Uh, so, but I want to thank everybody on the panel. I thought they did a real good job. And we hope you enjoyed this podcast from NJ Spotlight. For more information, visit njspotlight.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.